0: ready let's do this thing okay it is um well it's another glorious friday and welcome to the hot aisle Uh, i'm brian carpenter and with me
1: brett piatti good morning how are you doing this morning
0: i'm doing really good for some of us it's not quite morning it's almost lunchtime matter of fact our guest we're holding him back from lunch so let's do this thing because um i know i'm hungry so i'm just going to act like he's hungry instead so (laughs) this is episode 43 and with us, we have Barak Mishner. Barak, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And uh, Barak, we're going to introduce you and you know tell everybody what you're doing. But first, let's talk about why we're here. The goal of this show is to find out a bit more about what the cool kids over at Core OS are doing uh, and dig in specifically to their new storage toy that they have called Taurus. And uh, that's kind of what got us interested in this actual podcast. We reached out and their team was extremely responsive and coming back to us and saying they could join us. So we're going to talk a good bit about Taurus and what's going on there and what they're trying to do, but uh, also dig into some other parts of CoreOS OS and uh, get some good insight from Beric. So I'll stop talking and let Beric talk. Beric, Bar- welcome to the show again. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Actually, I already had lunch, so I'm all ready to go. Oh,
0: He cheated. So it really yeah, is me that's hungry. Okay. <laughs> so besides, besides eating lunch, tell us what you do at core OS.
2: Well, I'm the uh, lead for Taurus uh, at CoreOS. It was sort of a uh, little side project I started while I was working on some stuff for Quay here in New York and I pitched it up to our CEO, CTO, Brandon Impolvi, and and uh, they really liked it so I kept working on it and eventually it
0: became the project it is today. So you uh, will get into Taurus a little bit. It's actually a good note. We're gonna find out how it started and what you were thinking about. Are there other parts of CoreOS that you are working on or were working on before this? Yeah. When I first started uh,
2: at CoreOS, I was working on etcd uh, for a bit there, kind of organizing some stuff. Uh, but since I was out in New York, it was easier for the time to come work on Quay stuff. Uh, I was helping out a bit with Claire, uh, which was which is our uh, security vulnerability scanner for containers. And then after that, I kind of
0: started working on a research project, quote unquote, that became Taurus. So. We saw, we saw you actually hold a bit of a developer advocate uh, role. Oh
2: yeah, I uh, yeah, I've been known to go around and give talks at times. Uh, definitely a, a lot in Europe last year, and sometimes here on the East Coast. Uh, now that I've come back to California, I'm trying to focus a little bit more on doing more actual engineering work. But yeah, I, it's, I, I one thing I like to do is give talks. I'm not too bad at it, so. Okay. It's but fun to help out.
0: Is there a formal, is there a formal developer advocate role at CoreOS or is everybody kind of an advocate of not only their projects, but kind of the company as a whole, uh, in an organization of your size?
2: Um, especially when I started, it was just everybody pitching in, um, slowly we're growing and having more, uh, individual developer advocates, but yeah, for the, you know, even a year ago it was half the size of the company. So it was important to help out.
0: Awesome. Well, let's get into a little bit more about what you know what got you here um we thought it was really cool i mean especially for for all the things that you've done already at CoreOS. um you already have a storied history in some of the other parts of uh, you know parts of the industry so you were at google for a while there right were you yeah were you, were you in the movie uh the internship were you ever a noogler or anything like that
2: uh I wasn't in the movie i did have a friend who was an extra uh that's when i was living down in mountain view but uh yeah no i was at google for four years, three different sizable projects. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I definitely would uh, recommend it to anyone, but that I just wanted to go back to a startup again, which is how I ended up at CoreOS.
0: That's awesome. Well, so, uh, you know, we have a couple of other things we'd like to ask you, but it would be, it's kind of poignant there's some interesting things that we're going to ask you about that have to do with this week in tech history. And my friend, Brent. It loves this subject, so Brant, why don't you take that off? (laughs) Absolutely. So, uh, Barrick, this week in tech history, uh, in
1: in July of 2015, so almost a year ago, uh, Kubernetes version 1.0 was released by Google, and then Google partnered with the Linux Foundation uh, to kind of seed the cloud native uh, cloud native computing foundation. Um, So. I guess just, a, I think yesterday it was, Kubernetes 1.3 was just released. Yep. Um So I guess there, there were some big announcements around that. And, and Barak, if you want to jump in, I don't know how familiar you are with Kubernetes. I'm assuming you are because CoreOS is huge in that world. But what were some of the big announcements that came out of uh, Kubernetes 1.3 release yesterday?
2: Oh, um, I've been keeping up on it more. Entity um, really, uh, – yeah, so, well, some big things we've been doing. Um, Etcd v3, uh, I think has support for it now in uh, 1.3. Uh, it's, that came out anyway at the same time, roughly. Um, importantly, that's a huge improvement for Etcd, which is, I mean, and Taurus depends on it too, which is uh, supporting uh, an actual, well, not to get too technical right off the bat, but multi-op transactions.
0: Well, let's Over just to, ask, uh, let's get technical. What Explain, yeah. a? let's just learn here, because you said a word sure. that I've never heard. What is a, you said multi-op transaction? So let me back up a little bit and explain a little bit
2: more about etcd and why it's important, especially important for Kubernetes. Um, so in order to make you know, run things in a distributed manner, you need to have at least some metadata be consistent. It needs to know uh, sort of what is live right now. And I'd have everyone agree on some amount of data. Uh, so, with that, for instance, it's like I have you know, a Kubernetes cluster of 100 nodes. How many of them are currently uh, awake and checking in? Or how many of them are scheduled running jobs? Or how many of them have failed jobs? Uh, you know, Knowing things about the cluster as a whole is kind of what etcd is good at and built for. Uh, in the past, etcd uh, 2.x and so on has had a relatively straightforward uh, REST API so you can just send it in HTTP call and it will keep some amount of this metadata all the metadata consistent but it's just kind of one uh, value at a time I can update one piece of information. Uh, With v3 it's a uh, gRPC based protocol so that's a binary protocol done over HTTP2 Uh, that's kind of another Google project gRPC and with that uh, we also have a much more developer focused API that allows for multi-op transactions and what I mean by that is that it will look at and compare uh, like twenty different pieces of data at a time and you can atomically as in at one, in one shot uh, change a, a bunch of uh, important metadata and being able to do that means that it's way, uh, just way more efficient to be able to send that um, over the wire, keep everything up to date and scale out eventually is kind of the reason why you'd want that
0: so it's kind of it's it, to me what I heard was it's a it's a um, it's consistency for small parts while the rest of it becomes a bit more consistent or gets fully consistent is that is that the way it sounds to somebody who's a bit more layman
2: um yeah it's consistency it's the source of truth it's the kind of one master plan. Everyone can have their other sub plans, but you, know, you always have to go back to the to the guy in charge, and so that would be etcd. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think I read. Basically, it's uh, in, in computer programming. It's called consensus. Um, so it's that, it is that word of truth.
2: Right. And how do you have a record of truth uh, when you're in a distributed world, when things can fail, networks can partition, trying to make sure that you have this true history, uh, that's what some of these algorithms like uh, Raft and Paxos and so on are built to get around, not get around, but built to solve, right? Try to uh, get around this problem of trying to uh, make sure that, you know, you have a a master consensus plan, uh, a master list of some orders in, in which everything happens.
0: Yeah, I Absolutely. think we need to implement etcd on iTunes because the eventual consistency of when <laughs> the metadata for our podcast shows up is completely different than when the podcast actually shows up in the application. It's like if we push the podcast out, it's in your application in seconds um, because they're pulling it off of our site. But on the website where you go look and see what all the episodes are, that doesn't show up for hours and even sometimes a day. Um, so I think maybe if you give them a call, they, you know, that, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure they'd love to reach out and get some help. So, Actually, that's a perfect
2: example. Uh, I'm sure that's one of those sort of eventually consistent questions, and when you're talking about servers and uptime, you want to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? You want to make sure that it is as up-to-date as possible.
0: Yeah, I think they just don't care, and since they're so yeah. big, they don't have Plus, to.
2: and the other trade-off is that uh, it's slow yeah. and when you're trying to do that. So, you know, if you're ingesting large amounts of data into your Apple, that might make sense,
0: but... Yeah, well, we, you know, I usually talk to my bank about eventual consistency. You know, it's the idea that if I took some money from you, it's okay that I've overdrawn because eventually my paycheck will show up and we might get back to you even. Um, they don't seem to agree with it in the same manner that uh, that Apple looks at it. Um, yeah. But we do want to talk to you. We, we want to talk to you. We love the, the idea of what, you know, what Kubernetes is doing now and where etcd and some of these things are really impacting um, their most recent release. Um, but let's find out a little bit about what got you here and how you got to here, right? So, um, you, you, know, you clearly know a ton about development. You've done a lot of interesting projects. We're about to start talking about Taurus, but you know, what's this walk that you went down to get to the point where you were a, uh, you know, a developer in Taurus, what got you started in tech? Oh, wow. Um,
2: <laughs> scroll way back in the history. Um, I started in tech as a kid, I was fortunate enough to have um, my father be, you know, an electrical engineer by trade. And uh, so I was, you know, really excited when I had my first computer in my room. It was a 386SX with 8 megabytes of RAM and 80 megabytes of hard drive space. That was my first machine. And on that, I also learned a little bit from my dad about uh, programming. Uh, I wrote my first game. I was about eight or nine. Uh, Power Rangers were a big thing back then. So it was a little kind of dice rolling Power Ranger game. Um, That was my first bit of software I suppose I ever wrote. And after that, I got into Linux and stuff in high school. And in college, I went uh, to Berkeley, got my WCS degree. And coming out of college, I went to MetaWeb, which was a startup in San Francisco uh, that was... Trying to build a, the graph database of the world's information, and it was a really cool project. And I got to work on the underlying graph database. This is how I, I didn't actually take databases in college, but I got I knew a lot about C and you know, some about systems programming. So they were like, "Yeah, you'd make a good junior engineer for this." So that's how I got into databases and backends and basically all the stuff I do now. Um, was working. On that graph. Um, But because it was such a cool project, we got bought by Google in 2010. Uh, Actually, like this week.
0: uh, There's it. Brent, how did you miss this week in tech history that MetaWeb (laughs) was bought by Google and that's how Barrett got to us? How did you
1: miss (laughs) that? I did, but when the NextWeb sent out an email this morning saying Kubernetes 1.3 was released, I'm like, eh. That seems perfect for this one. So yeah. I went with it.
0: So Sorry. Sorry, <laughs> I Didn't mean to interrupt happening. there. But uh, sometimes, yeah. Brian misses out on his research.
2: So that was uh, six years ago. and Wow. And <laughs> then I uh, was working at Google. I was doing some stuff, um, porting over, kind of merging our code base into the Google machine. Um, after that, I did music research uh, down in Mountain View. And that was a really, really fun project. Um, sadly, it was a mountain view. Uh, and then I uh, moved out to New York, so I switched teams out here. Um, I was working on structured search, uh, so I was changing some of the rankings of the facts you might see on the right hand side of like a Google search for like how tall is Barack Obama or something. Um, and then I, on the side, I was building an open source project called Kaylee. Um, because we had done graph databases and because it was a cool thing, I wanted to give that back to the community. So I built an open source graph database with the same uh, same architecture as we had built at uh, Metaweb, and I had decided to write it in Go. And so I released that two years ago, uh, the previous week, just after Kubernetes was released, actually. And uh, so you'd written Kaylee,
0: released it. Yeah.
2: That's right. And it was on Go. And it was kind of an exciting project. And so I was working that on that for my 20% time. And I was starting to look around. I'd seen CoreOS have been doing a lot of cool things, especially in Go. And so I kind of said, hey, I write Go. You guys write Go. You know, we should talk. And that's how I ended up at CoreOS.
0: It's, it's really fascinating, isn't it, Brent? We see so many people working in Go these days. It's like, it's just uh, more and more. Like, uh, uh, I guess maybe it's a thing because of the, the the influence of Google in the area and things like that, but we just keep seeing it more and more. So um really, really interesting. One of the other things is the first time uh, first time I heard about Core OS is around Rocket. Second mm-hmm. time I heard around core uh, about Core OS was actually from a, a former coworker who was working now at Intel, um where they'd help their team had helped speed up etcd. Um, and then now the third time we've heard about uh core OS just from my perspective, where I sit, um, is around Taurus. Mm-hmm. So being as you're involved heavily in Taurus, we really want to hear more about that.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that kind of started because it actually started when I was doing a little bit of a developer advocacy thing, um, up in Boston, I was at this, uh, conference there, uh, container days in Boston and they had a breakout session people wanted to talk about you know, storage and persistence for containers and what could we possibly do here. And everyone kind of sitting around had a different case, you know, everyone had a slightly different use case for each of what they wanted to do. Some people were much more in the, I want to bulk process data, sort of MapReduce, Hadoop, that world. And some people were like, I want to have you know, very small block devices you know, or mount points for my containers. Um, this, you know, kind of thinking about Kubernetes and stuff like that. And so, kind of listening to all this, it occurred to me, A, that it was really kind of an unsolved, well, underserved problem. And uh, also that, uh, you know, really, if you kind of squinted, these were all very similar. So, kind of started thinking, well, what would the right answer for uh, a storage system be? Or what would, What's the dream, right? What are we trying to accomplish here? And the relative dream is something, uh, the way I keep putting it is magical file pointers. But the notion that I have a file, it could be a a virtual disk, it could be some large bulk process data, but that is kind of automatically managed and taken care of for me, right? One that I can just, uh, you know, it's sharded across multiple machines, it's replicated, so if a machine Dies, I don't lose data, it's uh, error corrected, error checked, encrypted, you name it. You, know, you can sort of layer on all these features, but you kind of want that to be completely abstracted away, so that I just read and write to a single file and I call it a day. Um, and so that would be, I'm sorry, okay, that would be a really cool thing. Um, I, Taurus officially started, or at least the first lines of code were written. Uh, short, here in New York, shortly after I had met with, uh, we were having beers just around the corner from here uh, with the folks from Packet. Uh, really great folks, Packet guys. Uh, and they, uh, and actually one of their engineers wanted to talk to me about Kaylee and graph databases because he had used it in his previous job. And so we were just kind of sitting around chatting, and we were talking about you know containers and Kubernetes and stuff and kind of what we were working on. And we were all kind of like, yeah, there's really no good storage thing. I'm like, yeah, I've been thinking about that. You know, what should we do about that? And so we started kind of ad hoc, you know, and half-drunkenly designing, like, what, you know, what would we want? And we woke up in the morning, kind of reviewed it, and we're like, hey, there's actually some good ideas here. Like, what can we do about actually, you know, building something that works this way? And so we kind of outlined a roadmap and got into it uh, in our spare time. And then from there, I started working on it kind of on the side. And like I said, I pitched uh, pitched CoreOS on the idea, and they liked it. And so I started working on that full time uh, as a research project. That became Taurus.
1: So, Beric, uh, so Taurus, uh, yeah. the, the what that I got from it, it's a, a modern distributed storage system that you kind of came up with. And you talked about this market being um, an underserved. So. Uh, tell me about you know why you thought it was underserved. Um, if I kind of look at kind of the, the main tenets of it initially, I think there there may be competitors or other people in that space. Um, other so lots, yeah. so yeah, what uh, what what pieces were those were those competitors missing? Um, and maybe we can even call them out just because um, I think it'll it'll allow people's minds to understand a bit more about what you're trying to accomplish with Taurus.
2: Sure. Well, for starters, there's there are many competitors which are proprietary or, you know, cost cost a lot of money. So just start with, you know, I'm sure they're great, but we can also just say, well, okay, right now let's serve open source, you know, the open source community first and foremost. That's something CoreOS really believes in, so let's push forward on that. Um, So in the open source sphere, there are other projects, say like Safford, Luster, or others, and they have been serving the uh, community a bit, but some of the problem is they've um, got, they come from a world before containers, right? You kind of look at how they're designed, and they're designed with having servers servers that have known IPs or known hostnames that are fixed in where they are supposed to live, and so sort of it's been, and so when you try and map that into Kubernetes or run it under Kubernetes, it's possible, sure, but it's not, it, there's an impedance mism- mismatch there. Um, this is, I mean, this is a common sort of thread we've seen as well. Like One thing we like to kind of say is that, you know, etcd. Came along, these really powerful basis for Kubernetes and everything. Sure, there was Zookeeper before, but nobody really liked working with Zookeeper. It's kind of hard to keep up. Trying to contribute to it would be very difficult. Um, and so, you know, can we make a better one? And we did, and that's etcd today. Uh, so similarly, right? There's like Seth. and one of my sort of in my digging and research. Um, so Seth has had a consensus store; right? they've had them on forever, but they only rewrote the consensus store to actually have one of these uh, consensus algorithms, a Paxos-like thing, uh, about three, four years ago, uh, 2013, I think it was. And they, you know, so it's kind of like these things have only been around for so long, right? Like Raft only came out in 2011. Yeah, Paxos was around well before that. But there's, there's so much more that we can sort of stand on the shoulders of giants and get toward now that we've kind of built the rest of the ecosystem.
0: So sure. So basically you're saying you looked at it after certain things had evolved and now you have kind of a different lens than other people who are creating things and you might solve that problem a little bit different than somebody who solved a problem before certain products existed essentially.
2: Exactly, and when uh, what's that I was gonna say? And furthermore, having kind of once you know, kind of the design, which again, we can learn from the people who've come before. Um, once you have kind of have a design in mind, you can make a much sort of nicer code base, a smaller, easier to work with, uh, easier to contribute, easier to get up, set, up, set up and running. One thing that people say that Storage is a hard problem, and that, you know, it's, some people even have said in you know, comments and things that, you know, we can't possibly solve this problem because it's impossible. I disagree with that. But, um, what is it? Sorry, wheel. Right. One thing I think uh, about storage as being a hard problem is that it's kind of two or three hard problems being conflated. Um, Because in order to do so, distributed systems and so on, you do need a consensus store of some form. And up until lately, there hasn't been ones. Everyone's re-implemented this consensus store. So, for instance, Taurus just says, well, etcd has solved that problem. It's a really solid core. Let's use that. And kind of wash our hands of doing uh, the rest of it. Now, that is a bit of a bet. Um, That's a bet saying that the only things I need consensus for, I can wrap up into a multi-op transaction. Actually, I brought that up very early on, but that's really important to me right now because the bet is that I can get all the benefit of having written a custom server to do this just by using etcd in the sort of newest way. Um, Go on, sorry.
0: Yeah, so you, you you you've mentioned this right. So you have etcd, and you're really trying to solve a, a maybe a more distributed problem than people have solved before, um, which me- needs new ways of helping manage that distribution. If I understand you correctly, um, but I was I'm I'm kind of interested, right? You mentioned a magical file pointer. Uh, yeah. it, it, and again, that's that's uh, Barrick's words, and not necessarily the yeah. product's words. Um, <laughs> no, no. But let's I, so and you mentioned so the the first thing I read about this is that the first thing it's presented uh, was in fact block. Um, So you're giving out block uh, for persistence with containers. Um, But from a pointer's perspective, is the goal here to also eventually give out file and object as well? Because you've mentioned uh, some of the landscape, multiple different products, all of which kind of have their own sweet point. Are you looking to have a distributed file block object, all kind of resident, you know, one size fits all type storage experience? Or is it just a basis for distributing and other people will build their storage experiences on top of it?
2: Um, both, actually. So I, it started life as trying to solve the full problem of let's do a complete file system with full positive semantics and everything. Um, at least that was the initial vision that we had when we were all talking about it. And over time, so we started actually building back as the research project. Um, one day, I got it in my head of, hey, what if I mount one of these files I'll loop back and just see how that works? It turned out to work out really quite well. So we did a bit more thinking and kind of didn't change the architecture too much. We just changed it from saying everything is going to live in this sort of file object space, and we're just going to kind of flip that on its head and have a storage layer that then has these different types of volumes on top of it. And so the first one that we have today is a block layer, which is just one file that's mounted loopback effectively. Um, But there's no reason that, in fact, you know, it's part of our roadmap to, in the future, plan for having an object store or a file store. Uh, These are separate volumes that are all backed by these file pointers that are in the storage layer. Um, This also means that other projects could create their own volume types. Which is kind of an interesting idea. Um, an example of this would be um, I was talking with um, Fabian from Prometheus, and they have a kind of fairly nice. Uh, they haven't abstracted at the back end yet; they're about to. And since they're doing this uh, sort of append, mostly append structured um, data store writing that would actually fit fairly nicely into its own sort of almost custom Taurus volume uh, made for Prometheus storage, right? So knowing a little bit more about each problem domain, we can start to take advantage of the same platform and then build it into or have backends for other open source projects. Um, And so yeah, object and file could be small ones of these, but it's trying to think about it as a uh, whole platform,
1: yeah so so beric um uh there there are there are other products out there that enable container persistence right i mean docker's got their volume driver their gluster hq has released flocker um and and those interface with kind of your traditional san environments is what i'm hearing the fact that they're not necessarily distributed um, is that the problem that you're you're trying to overcome or was there something um beyond beyond that, that you know maybe the the volume driver um, can't accomplish for you
2: so both of those uh Dr. Volume plugins and flocker um flocker actually tried a little bit more of the distributed thing early on they haven 't done as much with that lately um they 've been working like you said with more traditional sand environments or um, uh, hosting provided things you know things like uh, e b s or google um volumes that mount into the uh, GCE. But uh, one thing that would be great, right, is suppose you're running on bare metal, and you have all these machines. Uh, I could go out and buy a SAN, that would work, but wouldn't it be kind of cool if all the machines in your cluster, in your Kubernetes cluster, and in fact, I was just talk, chatting with some folks from uh, DigitalOcean yesterday, where, yeah, they have a little Kubernetes cluster running, and they're using like 8% of each disk that's built into it and nothing more. And so there's this a huge amount of disk space going to waste. Wouldn't it be really cool if we could run a service under Kubernetes on each of these uh, that capitalized on that hardware that's already there and then provide storage for the rest of the cluster. So it's kind of what happens when you don't have a SAN or don't have you know, EBS, what can you use and where does that storage come from and can we solve that problem?
1: Okay. Yeah, so I, I guess I kind of see, um, you know, if I look at CoreOS uh, from like a Tectonic standpoint, you guys are, are looking to create an on, on-premises, I want to say, uh, Google-type environment. I think your, your CEO, um, you know, used the term, what was it, like Giphy, Google mm-hmm. infrastructure for everyone else, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone can have all those pieces. I saw Tectonic kind of taking what Google has in their cloud, bringing it on premises. You're trying to look uh, kind of in the same model from this persistence layer. Mm -hmm. um, And that's what Taurus is trying to accomplish, right? Using bare metal with Kubernetes to do some sort of software defined storage layer to present storage to um, Kubernetes pods and Mm -hmm. then uh, containers as well.
2: Yep, that's a really good summary of it. yeah, exactly. Uh, Tectonic, like you said, is trying to tie up all the parts we have, all the many, many open source projects we have at CoreOS into sort of one platform that can be run anywhere. But definitely bare metal is being a you know, high important you know, point for us. So.
1: Okay. So uh, just kind of reading through the, the uh, repository on GitHub. Mm-hmm. Um, so I read through most of the documentation last night, but one of the things that stood out to me was, um, and this is written by you, I'm assuming, a majority of it, but it's yeah. not rec- recommended for production use. So, uh, but oh, yeah. you're encouraging <laughs> people to try it. So, talk to us about that, kind of where we are in its in its stages and um, what what's next for it, and when do you expect something to to move out? You know, whether it's an alpha today, today and beta, and, and eventually into uh, kind of enterprise production use, right, because I think coreos is directly focused on enterprise use cases
2: yeah, CoreOS is focused on enterprise use cases, but one thing I really appreciate about us is that we 're actually willing to sort of uh, run our experiments and actually write them and see what they you know, see what becomes of them. There's a chance that you know, there for a while that Taurus we'd kind of opt out of trying to tackle this problem, but it turns out to be something that we really want to tackle so um, what was I gonna say? Sorry. Oh yeah. So production readiness. Um, that means that when we write things or we build things, we like to get them out into the community as fast as possible, right? We like to show people what we're working on and encourage people to join in. And so we've done this, you know, many times before. We did this with Rocket. We did this with etcd. And you know, initially it's kind of early days. Initially it's Trying to figure out, you know, where exactly it fits. What people are you going to use it for? What people are really interested in about it? Um, and over time, it starts to solidify. And we you know, run battle test things, and we see how it works in various environments. See what it falls down. See what happens. And for storage, in particular, you don't want it to fall down, right? This is one of those things that's very important to uh, get right and take seriously with regard to. You know, how persistence is going to happen? So, how are you going to store data and not lose it?
0: So you and get, so go ahead. Sorry, we, to, we have to take
2: our time with this, right? We have to make sure that as we you know, as we build this thing, we don't want to call it production ready until it actually is. And, and for storage, it's an incredibly high bar. So,
0: and so our follow on to that, right? I mean, if whatever stage it may be in, you've you've given it to the community and said, okay. Uh, we're staking a claim that we are going to create storage as part of our, our core OS ecosystem. Uh, and you have, a uh, like you said, a lot of projects in a broad ecosystem, you know, from, from Rocket, etcd, Taurus, there's tons of other things. I, I try to name them all and fail. Um, it, and so now you've said, okay, we're adding storage to this game. And it's, it's early in its, its uh, age. What's the reaction from the community? Um, you know, Do you already have committers who are coming in from outside making changes and asking you to add that to the product? Are you are you guys controlling most of its future for now? Um, what's the community experience like today? Uh, and what's the feedback been other than, oh, this is cool, I'll think about it when you're further along?
2: Most of the feedback has
0: been, this is cool, I'll we'll think about it when you're further along. We have
2: gotten a couple committers. Um, in fact, within, I think about two or three hours of our announcement, we had our first outside commit, uh, from a fellow who's uh, really into um, ATA over ethernet. MD Lighthurst is his um, handle on GitHub. And he wanted to, uh, he said, hey, you're using my library to provide this uh, protocol. Hey, let me fix that up for you, right? I know you you marked that experimental within an experimental project. Let me make sure it's nice and get it up to, At least the rest of the project's speed, and he did like two hours after we had uh, released it, which is really cool um, so yeah, people are still kind of kind of looking at it kind of nodding and saying, yeah that that could be fun that uh, could be interesting and useful you know we'll see how it progresses, like I said, storage has a particularly high bar for wanting people to actually implement it or use it, but I've gotten you know some interest from various people and other uh, other companies that are experimenting with Kubernetes, or maybe they've got a test cluster and they're kind of excited to give it a shot. Um, so that's exactly kind of what we're going for: is trying to get it into the hands of people so they can tell us, you know, what they want, what they, what 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 about it excites them, or what doesn't work for them, um, so we can fix it.
0: So it, we mentioned you mentioned earlier that the the impetus for this is a bit of a time-based thing, right? There are um, problems um, with um, you know, existing storage um, that may or may not be serving a new space as software moves a lot faster than it used to and products move a lot faster. Um, mm-hmm. So you see a, a way to resolve it. Is there also, some of this being that software really is defining the hardware that's underneath, is there an, also a shift in the, uh, the hardware that you can consume underneath these standardized building blocks or these servers? And what they're capable of doing that allows for this, I mean, for instance, you're talking about ATA over Ethernet, and you're talking mm-hmm. about consistency on something that has no, no controlled fabric, uh, right yeah. no dedicated fabric, is it mm-hmm. really it sounds like it's also a bit of a combination of how far hardware's come and what's shipping off of the factory floor from you know your standardized server vendor. Uh,
2: yeah, the hardware. Uh, actually, it's amazing how much the sort of software is starting to emulate the hardware and the hardware is trying to emulate the software and these two things are slowly kind of merging over time. Um, One thing, in fact, this is, you know, one of the things that uh, Zach Smith at packet likes to talk about is that imagine you had like at what point the sort of the disc become the network or become like all these things start to converge, right? So right now, it's fun. We get to play with some of the new, uh, like, disk technology, say, like uh, NVMe's. But there's uh, some notion that maybe, like, it starts to become a lot more fuzzy when you ask about, uh, asking for data that's coming from a local bus or one that's coming over the network. And you're thinking that, and it's kind of, and there's this hardware, right? These are two physical uh, ports, right? One's the internet port, uh, Ethernet card, one's the... Uh, PCI bus, but at the end of the day, you're getting your data from somewhere, and so how do we start to talk about hardware that converges, software that converges into hardware? It's a kind of a soup uh, that we're uh, working on these days. I don't know. That's kind of a odd thought, but
1: yeah. So um, interesting. <clears throat> um, and by the way, I was I was trying desperately to be a committer last night. I was looking for any typo. Because I, don't, I can't code worth worth a darn. I was trying to find a typo in your documentation, and it's impeccable, by the way. So um, <laughs> Thank you. good job on that. Uh, but what I did see in there, which was interesting, and it kind of came up earlier, but um, there are data services kind of built into this. Um, you talked about the fact that it does replication, does things mm-hmm. like garbage collection, it does pool rebalancing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in the future it was mentioning encryption was on, on the map in the, on the roadmap, and then read Solomon error correction, so talk yep. to us about some of those features um, and then the the last one i 'd love to talk about are snapshots, which I, I find very, very interesting
2: yeah, and this is all they 're all tied together, so uh, here it goes uh, so in order to make a, um, a distributed storage interesting is it well, it has to be distributed. I know that sounds trite, but making it. Uh you have to somehow shard the data and make it live in various different servers right that's the dream so once he, you know in some sense we're almost like it's a database right we've written key value stores before that 's another thing we can learn from and so where each key in this case is a block of data or every key value pair is a block of data and so What have we learned from the database world? Well, it's really helpful to do things like an append-only log. We can do things like uh, sharding based on a hash ring, which is, in fact, how Taurus works. And what this means is that every file is kind of a list of keys, right? It's here's where all my blocks live, or here's here's the IDs of all my blocks, and I can use a, a hash function to find out where they live. Uh, so then this, using this hash function, that's kind of the key to it. And that's also why, you know, Taurus kind of has its name is it's volumes and a ring. Get it? Yeah. Anyway. Um. <laughs> well, I,
1: I got it after I researched a torus on, um, on Wikipedia and then it made sense, right? There's the ring, there's the disc, all that kind of stuff. So in the, yeah. in the volume it's a, portion, it's a
2: hash ring and it's a volume. Um, yeah. so and so the hash ring is a function, again we have to keep that net CD to make sure that everyone knows exactly what that function is at all times. Um, but the, so that function, everyone can download it and then execute it themselves, every you node know I mean. And find out where all these, you know, all this data lives across the cluster. And this is also then how we talk about, um, adding nodes, removing nodes, rebalancing data across them. So for every block of data, it's got a ordered list of where it should live on the cluster. Node 6, node 12, node 20, in order. And the first couple of these lists uh, form the replica set. So if I know I have a replication level of, say, 3, then I want the first 3 nodes that come up whatever that function tells me they should be. Um, that's where that data is set to live. Now suppose we add a node and that gets placed higher in the list. Um, part of the process is going through the data, making sure it's there, checking it every you know, a couple minutes is the uh, rough you know, time frame for how often this happens. Uh, and. If there's a new node, if I have, if I'm a server, and a piece of data I own needs to be owned by somebody who's recently um, been placed in front of me on the list, I can copy that data over. If I'm off the edge of the list, I can remove myself and delete the data once I know it's safe over there. And on the cluster goes as it grows. So that's kind of a quick description. It'd be easier if I had a whiteboard, but of how the uh, rebalancing works, which is what you just asked about. Um, Now, similarly, uh, so backups, that's how rebalancing works, that's how the data finds its way around. Um, So, backup, Uh, one second. Right, so a file then, I guess it is, a bunch of these keys as to where the data lives. It's just a list of, you know, Sector one is here, block two is there, block three is there. And we can go find where they live. For each block, we can do some amount of sort of abstraction on how that block gets retrieved or stored. So this is where things like CRC checking comes in. We can keep around a little bit of extra data with the file, which is a CRC hash for this block, and as we write it, we can change that hash, and as we read it back, we can check that hash and so too with encryption. As we write it, we can encrypt the block and as we read it back, we can decrypt it if we have the key. Um, This means, incidentally, that the data can live on a server, be encrypted, and if the server's holding it it will never have the key and it'll look like garbage, so that's kind of a nice uh, emergent property. And what else? Uh, For a, you know, for, a set of say three blocks, we can come up with an, a parity block, right? Or an error correction or a read Solomon block that also um, allows you to uh, take all these blocks and if there's, one of them has an error, say the CRC doesn't check or something, we can recreate that uh, error block. So it's just kind of providing much more data uh, persistence, right? Making sure like, being able to be resilient against failures and errors.
0: So, you, so, so you've, you've mentioned hashing is all ready and working. Um, yep. Replication. So uh, there, obviously, there's replication between nodes in a local yep. instance. Um, clearly, when you stretch this, the resiliency and the performance of consistency becomes subject to the network. Is there replication mm-hmm. between existing today between two Taurus systems? In other words, if you had Taurus A and data center A and Taurus cluster B and data center B, could you replicate between them? uh, Or is it simply internal replication between nodes?
2: For right now, it's just internal replication between nodes. Um, There's no reason in the future it couldn't extend to something like multiple data centers. Over time, actually, that looks a little bit more like treating both data centers as one large cluster and having more specialized um, hash functions that would make sure you know, that say, okay, well, you're running two replicas. Say the first element is always going to be from this data center. And the second element is always going to be from that data center. And in doing that, you have a full replication on both sides, for instance.
0: And so, uh, obviously pull back, um, s- drop a server out. You're good. Um, put one mm-hmm. in, you know, stretch out the cluster even further. Um, when and yep. you mentioned encryption, so encryption's already part of the product today.
2: Not yet. No, we're trying to make sure we get that exactly right before
0: we. So encryption and encryption and uh, error correction are both future. These are things you're working on, kind of right now type experiences. Exactly. Okay. Um, And then um, when you talk about garbage collection, is that something that basically you're handing off to the hardware, or are you actually is the storage subsystem managing the garbage collection? Uh,
2: It's managing its own garbage collection. So. A file gets written and you update a block. Uh, Every block, once it's been saved, synced, um, is immutable. It will never be changed again. That ID is gone. That's always what that data is. Now, in order to then write something or have the um, illusion of mutability, we write a new block uh, and then place its ID in uh, for the old one. This means that this is really convenient because it means that we don't have to worry a lot about immutable state. We can actually just send off these immutable blocks to the cluster and they'll be persisted you know, indefinitely until we have to go around and clean them up. And that's why we have our own garbage collection then, is that uh, because we've written it in this append only way, uh, we need to, if there's a block that's not being referenced or can never be reached again, it's just like any other garbage collector. Uh, then we need to go back
0: and clean up that space. Otherwise, we'll just run out of space. So, and, and incidentally, so Yeah, and, and that makes sense. And that's um, that, that's going to get into more of some of our other questions. So now, snaps, ex- do snapshots exist today, or is that something that's also part of the future?
2: No, they exist today. Um, okay. That was in 1.1. Okay. Out a few weeks ago. Um, they... So like I said, if every block is immutable, then a snapshot is merely keeping a copy of the list of whatever the state of the world was uh, before we wrote a new block in. And as long as we don't delete the old blocks, or we keep them referenced away from the garbage collector, uh, then the snapshot will just kind of exist indefinitely. So,
0: so they're inherently thin, um, and it basically it's only keeping Net new rights as and yep. keeping a list that's of what those net right? new rights, yeah. So, yep. okay, that's uh, that's quite interesting. So, one of the things we've seen a lot with storage systems is the idea that a lot of them are being based on object today. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, when we start it, we're like, okay, we're going to use objects underneath it, and then we'll serve you blocks based on objects, we'll serve you file based on objects, but the basis being object. Um, mm-hmm. conversely, here this seems to be a, a different underlying storage methodology and not based on object. And is that, we can ask maybe a bit of a loaded question, is that um, a result of the inherent level of distribution you're expecting? Or is it a result of a, a more database structured architecture? Or what is it that made you choose this architecture over say, um, basing it on object, which we're seeing a lot these days?
2: Right, so more of the question is then, why did I pick it? make it based on sort of blocks of data as opposed to objects. And so you kind of have a choice here, right? You can choose to have objects, um, in some cases of, depending on how you structure it, uh, of variable size, right? That's one approach. It's like, say I have an object which is you know, I don't know, one gig, another object which is two gigs, so on. Um, You may shard these I know Seth does, for instance. Um, But they are kind of variable size objects in the namespace, Uh, and that works fine. It it introduces some amount of uh, extra work in trying to schedule these things, right? If I have a cluster where I have a machine that has a huge disk and a couple machines with a bunch of small disks, trying to make sure that you know I can't I I can't fit it. It's kind of playing Tetris, right, it's trying to figure out where I can actually fit this object into the cluster if it's of a variable size. Um, totally doable, it's, but what, it's a lot easier to think about things of a fixed size and then having a little bit more overhead on the other side, which is uh, doing the bookkeeping to keep track of where each of these things live.
1: Okay, cool. So deploying Taurus, um, from my understanding, managed by Kubernetes, run on mm-hmm. Kubernetes clusters, um, does yeah. it does it work outside of the Kubernetes ecosystem? Could I say, hey, you know what? I'd love to use Taurus and try it out and present some, some block storage to my VMware cluster or something else.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, Kubernetes is important to us. We want to make sure it works very well with Kubernetes, but there's no reason it's just a Linux application, so it can run on you know, any operating system under any other system um, manage it yourself if you like um, I in fact, because it's written in go, right you can actually use you know Windows boxes or OS X boxes as your uh, storage uh, processes as please, well
0: please never mention Windows as a storage. Um operating system as far as manage <laughs> as far as running a storage operating system on it, unless it's windows. Uh, what is it? Microsoft file spaces or whatever it is. Other than that, no windows. Thanks. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, well, you mentioned regardless, this, so... it runs anywhere. If <laughs> yeah. It's great that it's go. Just don't, don't do that. It hurt my feelings. Um, yeah. so you, you mentioned this, so this is interesting. So if I were to go, um, you know, purchase something I've deployed or even already have existing like KVM deployed, um, you're saying I could um, implement uh, Taurus underneath KVM, um, grab all the local disks there, or the NVMe or whatever it is that excites me that day, uh, and present a um, a Torus volume back to my host operating system um, or multiple operating systems and leverage it in that manner. Yep. That's
2: okay. Uh, that's how I go about testing it. So
0: that's uh, that's that's really cool. Is there a is is there like a is it all CLI based? Is there a UI now? Are people um, submitting UIs? Or what's the best way if you're not if it's not part of Kubernetes where it's tightly integrated right now for for obvious reasons? Is there a, a CLI for Taurus or a UI? Yeah,
2: there's a Taurus CTL. It's a CLI. Um, it does some nice things. It tells you um, uh, who, what members of the cluster you have, how much space is being used, how much. It tells you some statistics. It also allows you to you know. Create volumes, remove volumes, take snapshots, you know, all the different uh, options you might choose there. Uh, as for more UI things, uh, it also has all of the instrumentation for Prometheus. So you can set up your Prometheus uh, monitoring system pointed at uh, the Taurus nodes and they will, and you get actually some really nice dashboards around like what's being used, how much data is flowing around over time, and you know, who's using what. It's yeah, fairly nice. So. I'd say, yeah, it's has got to have a CLI with, and we'll get to UIs you know, over time, but mostly just want to provide this storage.
0: So, um, and I, I assume you've got, you, you mentioned it earlier, but there's a relatively rich API where um, if anybody wanted to implement instrumentation or create a CLI of their own or a dashboard of their own using um, whatever it is that makes them happy, um, they'd be <laughs> able to do that as well. Sure,
2: yeah. It's uh, At the end of the day, it's kind of you measure a bunch of Statistics, right? And for storage, that's kind of the name of the game. Because unless, because the real value is the storage is providing, we could talk a lot about the, you know, usage numbers, the data transfer rates, all these things. Those are kind of what you want to see in the UI around these things. So right now we have a little bit of that around the CLI or on Prometheus, but yeah, otherwise it's just an API that people can ask about.
0: So would would this have been just out of curiosity? Would this have been capable um, before? uh... C D was sped up you know using modern intel architectures and some of the changes that were made in etcd over the last couple of years
2: um possible yes but it would not be nearly as um easy yeah (laughs) Yeah.
0: it's it's interesting yeah the catalysts are kind of interesting so um you know you've mentioned some of these things that are kind of short-term um projects right encryption reed solomon Mm -hmm. some of those things um you know we're very curious though what's What's really next for Taurus? I hope you can talk about it. What's really, you know, your bigger roadmap and what are your goals? Um, and even when do you see yourself challenging people to run this thing in full production with support? What does that timeline look like in your mind, even if you can't, even if it's not hardline committed by the business? Oh,
2: um, so in the near-ish term is, you know, some of the features like you mentioned. Then there's also a lot of work around, and from the. Coming months around setting up, much like we have for etcd, we have a—I call it a torture cluster—but it's the uh, a test cluster in which we cause induced failures and see what falls over. And when you keep when you keep running these, you know, failure conditions, uh, then you find some new and interesting bugs. You solve them, and hopefully those never ever show up for your users, um, even under the worst circumstances. So. And that's a lot of how Entity uh, through the 2.0 series got to be faster and more stable, too. Um, so that's kind of a midterm major project. Once we have that going fairly well, that after that and after some more features, and possibly even once we get to, like, talking about having an object stored uh, volume type, um, right about then, maybe, like, Early days of the object center, but after a good amount of testing and battle hardening and having people test in their own environments too. That's once we start to get more and more confident um, ourselves and by the members, that's when we can start to talk about having people using production and how to be quote unquote production ready.
1: Okay, cool. Well, Eric, so so just to kind of sum it up before we close things down, because we're nearing the top of the hour. Again, it, it, to me, it sounds like uh, Taurus was defined or designed to <clears throat> to help um, modern distributed applications, um, mm-hmm. aka cloud-native applications. Um, it uh, it provides uh, a Taurus volume, which today is block, um, but there's things coming out in the future for object. Um, and then there's eventually going to be this notion of uh, distributing the application or the, the storage outside of the the kind of the main data center uh and distributed across public and or private um, clouds if you will sum it up yeah
2: yeah that's a yeah that's a pretty good summary um, and there's so many fun industry problems along the way that it'd be grand to have you know people chime in on or join in and contribute to
1: absolutely yeah i mean i think you heard it from Beric just uh you know this is a this is a new project. Uh, try it out. See how it works out for you. Um, obviously, great in the Kubernetes world, um, but can be used outside of that in <clears throat> kind of your And in fact, your it's relatively uh,
2: straightforward to set up outside of the Kubernetes world too. One thing that you know personally, I was trying to get around to is trying to set and you know, trying to set up a you know, and cluster cluster. Cluster is a little bit easier in staffs. So that's kind of the pain at times, um, or at least there's a lot of magic going on that they don't really explain and sometimes you, in fact, even need a calculator for when, they, uh, when you need to try to set it up the first time. And so I wanted to you know, make sure that the setup experience, even outside of Kubernetes, was about as simple as it could possibly be, which is, you know, run an entity and then run a single binary, Go is great for this, and poof, you suddenly have a storage cluster that works.
1: Awesome. Well, cool. So, uh, Berik, we saw you well uh, on, on YouTube, so you presented at a lot of different places. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people love to put a, a face with the name and, and see in public if they can. Um mm-hmm. sounds like you're in New York sometimes and San Fran other times. Where can we find you next? Are you going to present at any of the conferences coming up?
2: Well, uh, in the very immediate sense, I'm doing a tourist talk uh, next week uh, here in New York City for the Kubernetes Meetup. Uh, after that, I imagine there are probably a couple talks uh, once I go back to San Francisco think, at the end of the month, so uh, obviously watch you know, Twitter, mine, or CoreOS's for things that are coming up. But yeah, uh, now that we actually have Taurus released, uh, we can talk a lot more about uh, what it is. The site for that, incidentally, is coreOS.com community
1: Okay. Cool. And so you kind of brought it up. Social media, great way to get a hold of you. What's your Twitter handle? Twitter handle, your GitHub handle. Um, how can people reach out?
2: Uh, Barak Mitch, M B A R A K M I C H. Everywhere, uh, Twitter, GitHub, you name it. It's one of the advantages to having a kind of strange name.
1: And then you'd also do tell us about your secret email that you have on LinkedIn. Um, I found this yesterday. Uh, cracked the code, but uh, it was fun and, and a little bit of a challenge to figure it out, so quickly tell us about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, so one way of managing some recruiter spam is having this little puzzle where it leads to a, a secret email address that if you actually email me that, I can at least like respond knowing that you didn't just like canvas me from a pile of email addresses, you actually spent some time looking at my profile. So. What this is, is based on actually a puzzle from uh, the MIT Mystery Hunt a few years ago. Uh, I can't remember, I think it was uh, this page intentionally left blank, I think was the name of that puzzle. But um, what it is, is it's a little Befunge program that looks like it's HTML. It's not HTML, it's Befunge program, I tell you so. Um, this means you have to go look up what funge is and find an interpreter for it run it and then they'll just run um, and give you the email address on standard app but uh, and then up to that it's a the uh, fun just kind of cool because it's one of these bizarre programming languages it's kind of like uh, brain F in uh, two dimensions if you want to think about it that way
1: yeah it was very very interesting to see how it kind of flowed uh, the up down left and right within that uh, but certainly interesting uh reading about it the, the 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 maker of it uh said i want it to be as miserable and hard to compile as possible so um it certainly <laughs> was that and yeah, uh, yeah but it, it was fun figuring it out and i did ping you and i got a response back so uh, yeah, that that's that's pretty cool it's fun um so uh and then and with that are you getting any any blogs out there i didn't necessarily see that you had a personal blog you've got wow. one on coreos that you've written
2: yeah, I write sometimes on the Chorus blog. Um, I've, been to get to a, which is I've been meaning to get into it, which uh, is cores.com slash blog. I've been meaning to get into blogging myself a little bit, but you know, there's a lot of code to be written, so sometime.
1: Okay, cool. And so the final question for you, Barak, is uh, we like to get an idea of, of um, what you're doing kind of in your spare time to, one, either stay on top of technology or unwind. So do you have any books and or websites that, you're, that you stay pretty glued to uh, that you're focused on right now?
2: Um, I guess the one I'm liking right now is there's the distributed systems Slack channel. And A, just watching the conversations there, but B, they also have a feed of papers uh, to read. So that's a fun way to keep on top of kind of what's new. Um, okay. As for Unwinding, uh, swing dancing. I got into that in college and I go every Tuesday night in Oakland, so.
1: Right on. Very cool. Well, Berik, certainly appreciate your time today. For all of our listeners out there, we're going to shut down the hot out today, but we encourage you to get social with us. Let us know what you want to hear, um, and let us know how we're doing and what you what you like and what you don't like. But with that, um, my name is Brent Piatti,
0: and I'm Brian Carpenter.
1: Berik, thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you for having
0: me. It's
2: been great.